Well, thank you. What a wonderful way uh, to begin a worship service together. Every one of the families that we saw up here a few moments ago, and their life as life goes by, as will happen with every family and every dynamic, hard conversations will be had. Real life, serious, painful conversations will be had. Whether it's a, it's a life stage situation of, of moving and relocating away from your family, or it's an even more serious conversation of, of one's health beginning to fail and their time on this earth coming to an end. Those conversations, most all of us have had them in every family that we prayed for and commit to, to help hold accountable and to encourage. They will likewise have those conversations. For some, it will be earlier than later. Difficult conversations. In our letter of 2 Timothy, Paul has been swirling around the drain of the difficult conversations that we're going to read today in chapter 4, verse 6 through 8. He's hinted at it. He's already made very clear the fact that he's in chains. But this morning we get a glimpse, as clear as day, of the reality that Paul either knows the day of his execution or he knows his fate in prison will end this way. There will not be some incredible earthquake that will break him free like we see in Acts. This day, this is jail sentence for Paul will end in his termination, in his execution. So in verses 6 through 8, as we look at this text, we see this understanding that you and I, as disciples of Jesus Christ, as followers of Christ, even in hardships, even in the hardest conversations that will come upon every one of us to have, we have this understanding that we are still Christ's disciples. And since we are owned by Him, those who have turned and trust themselves in Christ, even in the hard, painful conversations and situations of life, our King is still all-powerful. And every one of us, when these situations come in our life, we have one of two areas that we will go to. We will either embrace a poor me attitude. I don't say that in any mocking or irrespectable manner. The circumstances of life begin to close in. The temptation for every one of us, myself absolutely, with a bullet point, is to say, poor me, and a desire to want to quit or to give up. And yet Paul, as he goes through this reality of his impending death, and he shares this news with Timothy, he embraces a poor me attitude. A poor me attitude. Akin to in the Old Testament when the Lord would call His people to, to, in Exodus and Leviticus to pour out an offering of libation, this, this offering accompanied with burnt offerings that were given in praise to God and sacrifice for sin. Every one of us in life, we have to constantly ask ourselves the question and ask for feedback from our church family. Am I living in a poor me or a poor me lifestyle? And every one of us, it may change a multitude of answers as we go throughout the simplest of days. But as we look at 6 through 8, these three little verses, I've been excited about this text from the very beginning where we chose this book to walk through several, several weeks ago. And so as you have your Bibles, open up and let's begin the incredible, insightful depth of God's Word as we look through, beginning first and foremost in verse 6, that the Lord purposes to pour out His disciples for His good pleasure. If you and I will embrace a persevering mindset, a poor me, Lord, mindset, 
we must understand that the Lord purposes to pour out his disciples for his good pleasure. In verse 6, we see two elements that the disciple understands. The one who is owned by Christ understands these two components as they, they aim to, to embrace a poor me mindset, pour me out, Lord, mindset. And the first is this. His disciples are his disciples through their appointed finish line. Every one of us has a different finish line. None of us will finish in the same way or likely in the same place. But we are his disciples through the finish line. However, that finish line may end. And look at verse 6 as we begin this exposition of God's word. Verse 6, Paul says to Timothy, For I, Timothy, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. In the time of my departure, it has come. By nature of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, you and I are owned by Christ. This is our primary profile setting. We are owned by Christ. We are not our own. We are not our political party of choice. We are Christ's. That's who we are. We are Christ's. And He will pour us out until our very last breath on this earth. The disciple of Christ who will persevere through all of circumstances will embrace this understanding that I am Christ when life does not go the way I would have ever chosen. I'm His. Pour me out, Lord. I'll give you the references. We won't read them, but Leviticus 23.13 and Exodus 29.38-42 are two particular locations in the Old Testament I think Paul is alluding to where he pours out those that make sacrifices before the Lord, before the altar, they're pouring out a custom and a company with the burnt offering sacrifice that's taking place. And Paul intentionally plays on this like he does earlier in Philippians. And he says, my life, my energy, my time, my talents, or my treasures, my very being are in the cup of the Lord. And if He chooses to pour me out as He's doing in prison to give testimony of the gospel before these men and women that I am His offering. He tilts me. He spills me with purpose. The same is said for the disciple, you and I today, in 2018, as we hope to persevere in the faith of Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your King, you walk through life saying, it's all by luck or it's all by chance, or it's all by happenstance, or there is no real purpose. We're just randomly on this dirt going through space that doesn't really matter. But that's not what Paul says. Do you know Jesus Christ in such a way that you can say, Lord, pour me. Pour me. Because you're in charge of all things. This word depart here at the end of verse 6, you see that? Paul tells Timothy, in the time of my departure, it has come. This is the only place in the New Testament where this specific word is used. But historically, in other ancient writings, it's used of, of, of a group of soldiers that are moving on camp. They're packing up camp and they're moving off to a different deployment. It's used, secondly, of like a boat. A boat that's it's time to, to undo the knot that's keeping it there in safe travels and it's being loosened to move on to a new location. And it's also given as a synonym for death. A time of departure. The believer can say in their heart, as my life knot is being undone, the pains and aches and griefs that come with that, my Lord is still in charge. There is still purpose in pain. And if my Lord would choose to pour me out for His good pleasure at this time, glory be to God. Glory be to God. 
You and I are a people who, who pray that the Lord's purpose is to pour us out, that we would embrace this understanding that, that He will pour us out up to the very end of our finish line, but also in verse 7, that His disciples are His disciples through the entirety of their appointed race. We are Christ not only as we finish the finish line, but every little dot and tittle, every little hill to climb and depth of valley to walk through, we are His. We are His. Look at verse 7. This incredible statement. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have fought the good fight. Earlier in chapter 2, remember Paul gives the example of a soldier. Take on the mindset of a soldier. Not sure why I'm grabbing my jacket like that's what a soldier would do, but that's for some reason I just, just did that. There will be a time when our tour of duty is over. But not yet. While there's breath in our lungs, not yet. None of us today can say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. But what we can say as believers of Jesus Christ, at the end of today, when our head hits the pillow, today I have fought the good fight, today I have finished this day's race, and tomorrow I pray that I will continue to keep the faith. All we can do is run today's race. We can't run yesterday's race. We can't run last year's race. Some of us in our lives are stuck in a race that was years and years ago. And we're confounded by that guilt or shame and we refuse to move on from it. All we can choose is to run is today's race. Others of us are consumed with anxiety. Do you know what I'm talking about? Anxiety, a future of all the what-ifs happen. And they paralyze us to run today's race of faithfulness for the gospel to be and to make disciples of Jesus Christ for His glory and His goodness. I have kept the faith. Ironically, in the biblical gospel, the only way that you and I can keep the faith is by entrusting the faith onto other people. See, the gospel is, is this thing that we're called to, to pass on to other people. If I'm keeping the faith of Jesus Christ, the news of that Jesus Christ, God in flesh, the sinless God, man, that while you and I are sinners against God, rebels against a holy and just God, that we deserve the wrath of God. That's not just that I sin, but I enjoy the sin I do in rebellion against the God who knit me together in my mother's womb. That I deserve hell. And so do you. Yet God in His love for us was in Jesus Christ who would live a sinless life not just so that we could be forgiven, but that so His for perfect life would be given over to our account. So it's not like when you become a Christian, I'm, I'm, I'm put at ground zero and I'm neutral and now I need to go do good things, but Christ's sinless life has been given over to your bank account. You are righteous before God. That's who you are. And now you're called as a righteous one, as a man and woman, to live your life in my life for His glory. And in His good pleasure, He gives us a local church family to bind ourselves together to be a people of making disciples through all seasons of life, even in seasons of impending death. That's the goodness of the Lord. If you but turned and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you find a perfect Savior. You, you find a perfect Lord. Do you know Him as King? If you don't, that's your step one. And if you do, your step two is bind yourself with the congregation and run after making disciples. Unashamed for the glory of God. He will rework your life. He will rework your marriage if you are, but loosen yourself over to His control. 
I have kept the faith. The growth in faith, as any of our older saints who have run this race for many years would tell you, it's slow, it's sweaty, and it moves at a sloth's pace in one direction. Christ-likeness for His glory. The power of the infomercial impacts the local church as well. You know what I'm talking about? You ever left the TV on after the big sporting event and the infomercials begin? And how do they begin? They begin out with something ridiculous. And you watch this infomercial and you're thinking, that's ridiculous. And 30 minutes later, you're like, I got to buy this so I can lose 25 pounds and look like that guy. You know what I'm talking about? I'll be so healthy if I just buy that piece of kitchen equipment. They're tempting, aren't they? What do they offer? They offer us a shortcut to maturity. In the Christian life, growth as disciples is an intentional plotting course at a sloth's pace. I'm not, conferences are not bad. These sprints in life are not bad, but they are, they are not the diet. They're the supplement to the life of intentionally bonding ourselves one to, to another to be and make disciples, to have people to speak into our lives, to hold us accountable, to walk forward in Christ-likeness. That's growth. I said move at a sloth's pace, so I became interested this week in what exactly, how, what is a sloth's pace? Sloths will move no more than 40 yards a day. 40 yards a day. I'm, I, I move like 90 yards a day, so I'm thinking, these sloths are pathetic. But see, by God's good glory and pleasure, sloths are designed to move 40 yards a day or so. So do you know what happened if a sloth decided, instead of moving in the trees at about 40 yards, do you know what happened if they just decided to get ambitious and start moving a couple miles a day on the ground floor of the forest? You know what they would be called? Dinner, right? They're not designed for life on the ground. You and I as followers of Christ are designed to live the tortoise lifestyle of godliness in one intentional direction. We're not designed for the hare. We're designed to live a godly, intentional lifestyle one day at a time. Reading the Word. Praying. Gathering together in the rhythms of the local church family. And as time goes by, we become, we pray by God's glory at oak trees. Our church continues to grow as an oak tree in the community of a gospel-making endeavor for the glory of God. This is how God has designed us. This is our desire, that we would be His disciples through the entirety of every aspect of our race. Well, first, the Lord purposes to pour out His disciples for His good pleasure. And secondly, as we come into verse 8, the Lord Himself is the eternal prize for His empty disciples. The Lord Himself is the eternal prize for his emptied disciples. After the final drop of our life has been poured out for God's good pleasure by him, to him, and for him, we will receive an eternal prize. I'm going to tell you about the prize. Our eternal prize will be awarded by, will not be awarded by this world. The eternal prize that you and I have to receive as followers of Christ, once our life has been poured out, it cannot be awarded to us by this world. It doesn't have the authority or power. Look at the beginning of verse 8. Paul says, Henceforth, remember he just spoke about, I have kept the faith. And now he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, 
which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Now, you don't need a degree in sociology to grasp the hungers and longings of mankind. Look at a commercial, look at a marketing campaign. You deserve it. Have it your way. The world offers in all its different mediums and all its different formats power, pleasure, comfort, and pleasure, and fame. That's the offerings of the world. If you pursue it in your, in your avenue, in your lane, as hard as you can, eventually you'll get there. And we look at people that have gone before us and run the race of fame, that have run the race of power or pleasure or comfort, and they get to the end, and what do so many of them end up saying? It was hollow. And so those that realize that before they reach the reality of this pseudo-prize, they turn and they walk back, and we see them going by, but what's the enticement of the flesh say? Well, they didn't run it like I'm going to run it. They're not going to be as strategic as I'm going to be. The enticements and the trappings of the flesh are there. And they waste their life. A chasing after the wind. All of these things are but fool's gold. The eternal prize cannot be given by man. It is only God's to give. Now, if you do have your Bibles, I would love for you actually to flip back, look at back to chapter 3, verse 16 of 2 Timothy, because I think we get an insight into what exactly is the crown of righteousness that is given by Christ Jesus the judge. Only Christ will give this prize. The world cannot give it. The world may claim to offer you satisfaction, but it cannot give it. Only the crown of righteousness will satisfy. And only the crown of righteousness is Christ to give. For but He is righteous. If you've been clothed in Christ, you've been clothed in His righteousness. And once we finish the race, I think we have an insight right back here to chapter 3, verse 16. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for what? For training in righteousness. Why do you train? You train to win a prize. You train to win a crown. So once the race is finished of building our life upon the goodness of God's Word, of abiding in Christ, as Timothy is to abide in his ministry upon Christ, when his race is over, just as Paul's will be, what will he likewise receive? The crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness is not just Paul's. The crown of righteousness is all who but trust in Christ. Young or old, this is a righteousness that we receive because it's Christ that's lavished upon us. Our sins are but washed away. And our righteousness is in Christ. So there will be a day that will come when there will be no more flesh to war against, Christian. There will be a day where there will be more death to struggle against or to strike us and give us grief. There will be no more temptation to resist ever again. And there will be but her perfect harmony in soul and eventually body. So we worship the Lord for eternity. Body and soul. With our King in person. That's the beauty of this reality. That this is ours. When, when we read back a few moments ago, when we read about that Paul has finished the race, that he's, he's done this incredible stuff. He's, he's fought the good fight. It sounds like boasting, but it's not boasting. Remember what Paul said about himself? That he is but the greatest of sinners. But the Lord has shown, as we looked at last week, perfect patience. 
And so the picture is, as somebody that was the worst, if he can be rewarded this great crown of righteousness by abiding in Christ, what can Timothy receive? The same prize. What can you and I receive, regardless of your background or your sin past? You can receive the crown of righteousness perfectly as well. It's not a statement of arrogance, it's a statement of encouragement. You and I do this oftentimes in our own lives. For me, one of, one of uh, the greatest encouragements I had to go and, and pursue doctoral training was a man that was a mentor in the faith, and he said, Brent, I did it. And if the Lord's encouraged you to do it, and you commit to it, you can do it. The encouragement, you ever have encouragement like that? Somebody that you love and care for comes to you and says, listen, I know you. I know you. And I know you can do it. That's what Paul says. Look what the Lord has done in me, through me and to me. Not to boast in himself, but to boast in the Lord. It's the same, he says, for who? For all. For all. Who will abide in Christ. We have a crown of righteousness awaiting us. And the irony of this text is that, do you remember the context? Do you remember the context? Where is Paul writing from? A jail cell. A Roman judge has given a decree of his death for preaching the gospel. And when that Roman judge's words come to completion, when Paul is executed, when it appears as though Rome has won, when it appears as though the world has been victorious, in reality, what will he receive? The King of Kings will reward him a crown of righteousness. In life, the times it most seems that the evil one is victorious, what's it only done? The greater King and the great King, the Lord of Lords, is victorious. The crown of righteousness awaits us all. So don't get caught and sucked into this trap of the world that, that tells you just to be downcast and, and your hope is in this world. It is not in this world. And the political spectrum, one side argues your best life now, the other side argues the world's best life now. But the hope of heaven, the hope of Christ, is that your identity is hidden in the King of Kings. That the abiding of man, even the injustice of man, done by this judge, it will not rob Paul of his crown of righteousness. Nothing that happens in this world can rob you, Christian, of your crown. And nothing that this world tries to offer you can give it to you either. Only those who abide in Christ receive the crown. Do you know Christ? He's a perfect Savior. He's a perfect Lord. He's a perfect Master. And trust yourself to Christ. He knows your depths deeper than you do. He knows your sin more intimately than you do. And He loves you. Our King is good. Amen? Our King is good. Amen? The families that are up here, when they give those words a moment ago, they addressed in broad statements a reality that life will hit them in ways they cannot anticipate. And yet their commitment is to Christ, the King. That is our King. He is the one who reigns with a crown of righteousness and He will give it to us upon completion. Our eternal prize will, will, will also will not be rewarded by this world, but will, our eternal prize will, will be enjoyed by all, by all who desire Christ. Look at verse 8 as it finishes. Verse 8. And not only to me, Paul says, but also to all who have loved His appearing. If you have trusted Christ, you are His. 
Have you trusted Christ? Are you his? Look at this promise. It's not some exclusive thing that only Paul receives this price. He says, not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. This is a promise. This is a gift to us. And it's going to be contrasted. We're going to look at it next week when we finish this letter. By the way, next week, we're going to finish this letter. We're going to go through the final conclusions. And what many people do, unfortunately, is they miss the conclusions. Roman, who does such a great job leading our servant leadership trainings, He's quick to point out, don't skip over the introduction and the conclusion of the letters. In the conclusion remarks, he's going to provide us incredible insights to how you and I are designed as disciples and how we can better partner together to make disciples. Incredible insights. What Paul says here is that all, all who come to Christ have a perfect Savior. All will receive the crown of righteousness and will but come to Christ. But he's going to do with this statement, not only to me, Paul says in verse 8, but to all who have loved his appearing. He will contrast it with this individual called Demas, who instead, in contrast, he longs and he loves for the world, not the coming of Christ. The eternal prize is ours in Christ. There's a question I think is helpful for you and I as we live in what's called the, the buckle of the Bible belt. Is that accurate? Would you agree? At least the zipper down here. I don't know what this is. The pant leg of the Bible belt. I don't know what we would be. About everywhere I go, I talk to people. They're, they're from, uh, I talked to a guy the other day from Chattanooga. And he said, I live in the buckle of the Bible belt. When I was in Missouri, near Kansas City, they called that the buckle of the Bible belt. And I'm thinking at some point there has to be like a pant or like the leather to the belt. Wherever, somewhere. Everywhere can't be the buckle. Whatever part of the pant we are here or the belt, whatever this is, I think there's a helpful question right here that you and I can use in our conversations with our friends and loved ones. Around 70% of the nation claims to be, would claim the title Christian. 70%. It's it's incredible. I think in this text, we get a great helpful insight in how to have conversations with those people. And it's this. Do you long for the appearing of Christ? Do you long for the appearing of Christ? Christ? Not did you grow up in church. Or just a simple question. Do you long for the appearing of Christ? Now when Christ comes, we know there will be death no more. Or we know He will reign. Reign on the earth. But I think there is a real danger. All people would say, I don't want any more tears. I don't want the things that Christ will do when He comes back. Or, you know, I want those things He'll do when He comes back, but, but do we long for Christ's coming? Do we love Christ? And do we long for His coming? That's a reflective question in our hearts. Even as the body gathered, that you can encourage your roommate, your spouse, your friend, your kids, your parents. Do you long for the coming of Christ? That statement, I think, moves us to worship. It will move us to assessment, repentance, and hopefully to worship as we reassess our priorities and say, you know what, I long for my sports team to win. I long for barbecue. I long for my my pains and my aches in my body to to stop. But you know what? I'm going to long for Christ. Christ. 
What a great cry to give as a church family. As we pray for those young ones, we pray that they would long for Christ's coming. Because that's a gift that doesn't spoil. That's a gift that preserves the persevering. And our next steps, I have two questions. Two questions. Or more applications and statements. Number one, commit to your church family in such a way that you trust others to hold you accountable to better nurture a poor me rather than a poor me attitude in prayer life. This is not referring to grief. This is referring to a reality in our lives that do you have people in your lives that you know love you enough and are courageous enough that can come to you and say, Brent, how's this area of your life? For me, my small group, since we moved here, has been invaluable for that. Our Sunday night small group, Justin and Natalie are part of, we meet at the Rab's house. But that group of people of different ages to be able to come into my life and speak honestly, just ask these reflective questions. The men's group on Thursday, for me, has also been a helpful area. There is a multitude of areas in our church family. But you have to ask yourself this question, am I committed to, to trust my church family in such a way? that I know when they say, Brent, are you living a poor me life right now? That I'll take it in such a way that I know they mean it with love and not an offense. The second question is more of a practical area of life. As we aim to be those who are consistently looking forward to the coming of our King is this, cultivate a grateful heart. Cultivate in your life proactively a grateful heart. Look at the gifts of the Lord. Every good gift is from the Lord above. To look at it and say, Lord, I want to be thankful the busyness of the holiday season that's right around the corner. There's a temptation to let our life live itself and we catch up come January. You know what I'm talking about? We want to provide for us a church family. A specific date next Sunday at 6 o'clock. We're going to gather here. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together. It'll be a family service. You'll have an opportunity to write down areas of thanksgiving to the Lord to share those with your church family, to encourage each other, to pray for each other, to fix our eyes on the good gifts of the Lord. That we would be a people who are cultivating a grateful heart to the King who pours us out for His pleasure and His goodness. Our King is worthy of our lives. He's worthy of all things. As the Lord pours us out, will you likewise pour out your heart in praise to the Lord?